So we're reading from Mark 14, verses 43 to 72, which you'll find on page 1021 of the Red Bibles. Just as he was speaking, Judas, one of the twelve, appeared. With him was a crowd armed with swords and clubs sent from the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the elders. Now the betrayer had arranged a signal with them. The one I kiss is the man. Arrest him and lead him away under guard. Going at once to Jesus, Judas said, Rabbi, and kissed him. The men seized Jesus and arrested him. Then one of those standing near drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest, cutting off his ear. Am I leading a rebellion, said Jesus, that you have come out with swords and clubs to capture me? Every day I was with you, teaching in the temple courts, and you did not arrest me, but the scriptures must be fulfilled. Then everyone deserted him and fled. A young man, wearing nothing but a linen garment, was following Jesus. When they seized him, he fled naked, leaving his garment behind. They took Jesus to the high priest, and all the chief priests, the elders, and the teachers of the law came together. Peter followed him at a distance, right into the courtyard of the high priest. There he sat with the guards and warmed himself at the fire. The chief priests and the whole Sanhedrin were looking for evidence against Jesus so they could put him to death, but they did not find any. Many testified falsely against him, but their statements did not agree. Then some stood up and gave this false testimony against him. We heard him say, I will destroy this temple made with human hands and in three days will build another not made with hands. Yet even then their testimony did not agree. Then the high priest stood up before them and asked Jesus, Are you not going to answer? What is this testimony that these men are bringing against you? But Jesus remained silent and gave no answer. Again the high priest asked him, Are you the Messiah, the Son of the Blessed One? I am, said Jesus, and you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. The high priest tore his clothes. Why do we need any more witnesses, he asked. You have heard the blasphemy. What do you think? They all condemned him as worthy of death. Then some began to spit at him. They blindfolded him, struck him with their fists, and said, Prophecy. And the guards took him and beat him. While Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came by. When she saw Peter warming himself, she looked closely at him. You were also with that Nazarene, Jesus, she said. But he denied it. I don't know or understand what you're talking about, he said, and went out into the entrance. When the servant girl saw him there, she said again to those standing round them, This fellow is one of them. Again he denied it. After a little while, those standing near said to Peter, Surely you are one of them, for you are Galilean. Um, He began to call down curses, and he swore to them, I don't know this man, uh, what you're talking about. Immediately, Immediately the cock crowed the second time. Then Peter remembered the word Jesus had spoken to him. Before the cock crows twice, you will disown me three times. And he broke down and wept. Just before Johnny comes to um, sort of explain and preach to us on this passage, I think it's important um, in the rhythm of a church service to have a time of repentance, to actually quiet our souls before God. Um, I spoke of Peter at the beginning. Peter had actually been the first of the disciples to really state who Jesus was. And I want you to do that because it's easy for us to read ourselves into stories. Um, And I think we can do that here too because Peter has denied Jesus. Um, And that's really big. And Jesus had said that's what was going to happen. Um, And I know that we are all capable of doing that in thought and word and deed throughout all our lives to deny who Jesus really is. And Jesus often uses the Psalms 
as a blueprint for his prayer. Um, and I'm going to do that now. I'm going to just read some little extracts from Psalm 51, which is often called a psalm of repentance. So if you just want to um, just quietly still your heart, you can repent with me, because I know that I've done this before. I've denied Jesus in my thoughts and my words and my actions. I'm just going to read a small part, and I'm going to read it slowly. Um, so let's just still our hearts now. Have mercy on me, O God. According to your unfailing love. According to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my sin and cleanse me from iniquity. Create in me a pure heart and renew a steadfast spirit in me, O God. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Father God, we thank you that you know us. You know everything about us. And we can come before you as people who are entirely known. And that is terrifying as well as comforting. But we come before you now and we thank you that we can repent. And you promise that you will forgive. We thank you for that now. And we thank you for what we're about to hear about Jesus. In his name. Amen. Thank you, uh, Toby and Johnny. I've learned that basically you need to be called Johnny if you get to preach at this church or something like that. So um, I'm doing all right on that one. Uh, got, I've got an H, yeah. Uh, I'm a John who's been... Uh, my, my nickname goes up to Johnny. There we go. I'm not a Jonathan who's gone the other way. It's a real privilege and a pleasure to be with you. Thank you very much for welcoming uh, me and Naomi. And as uh, Toby's been uh, introducing us to this passage, we're going to get straight in there. So do uh, keep opening your Bibles, page 1021, 22, so you can follow through as we go along. Uh, life, uh, Life is often about what you achieve, isn't it? That's how we tend to define... Life, ourselves, and others. So it begins when we're children. Got the little kids running around, and we want to know, you know, first smile, first steps, first day at school, first goal, first concert, passing exams as you get older. And it continues, doesn't it? As adults, we just start off straight away with, what do you do in life? Where do you study? What are your hobbies? What can you, what can you do as a person? What have you achieved? And then, of course, there's the things that we don't ask outright, but we want to know anyway. You know, do you have a nice house or car? Is it nicer than mine? <laughs> do you manage to find a girlfriend or a husband? Do you have more friends or money than me? We kind of analyze these things, even when we don't say them. Basically, we kind of want to know, don't we? And that's the way we work as humans. What have you got going for you in life? What makes you interesting, perhaps? Worthwhile to talk to? 
Or maybe I just want to make know that if you're one of those kind of ridiculously capable people, I don't really want to have to hang out with you because you'll just make me look a bit silly all the time. Life is all about what we have achieved or what we hope to achieve. And of course, that means that when we feel like we're not really doing well enough, then we can be depressed. We can be sad about it. We get worried when we see other people, normally the people who are just a little bit better than us, and we get worried about them, and we kind of think we need to try and beat them. And what does our world say when we, when we, when we act like that and when we have that feeling? Well, our world says, doesn't it, you've got to sort it out. You've got to look inside of you, you've got to say, I can do it, and you've got to go for it, and then you'll be fine. Here's what um, some people say. Have you ever heard of Tony Robbins? I think, I don't know if he's still popular in the UK. He's certainly a big guy in the States. He's the guy you go to if you want to know how to make a success of your life. One of these kind of big American kind of guys, you know. He says, people who succeed have momentum. The more they succeed, the more they want to succeed, and the more they find a way to succeed. Well, here we go. Here's uh, somebody. Guess who this is? Let no feeling of discouragement prey upon you, and in the end, you are sure to succeed. That's very American, and it is, of course, that's Abraham Lincoln, one of the presidents. Here you go. What about this one? If you can dream it, you can do it. Who said that? Walt Disney. Walt Disney said that. There we go. This is me just on Google, by the way. I don't know these things. Um, and here's, here's a good one. This made me, like, made me chuckle. I made a resolve that I was going to amount to something if I could. And no hours, nor amount of labor, nor amount of money could deter me from giving the best that there was in me. And I have done that ever since, and I win by it. I know. Who said that? Apparently, Colonel Sanders of KFC. (laughs) But it's true, isn't it? All those things, we, we, we like chuckling at that. But that is the way it works in life. And we think, yeah, I just need to look inside myself. I need to get there. I need to do it. And if you're a Christian, then often we, we find that we apply these things as Christians in that way too. You feel like you're a bit of a failure. Maybe you're not getting along uh, with your Christian life. You think, well, I'm just going to be a better Christian. I'm going to get up and I'm going to read my Bible this morning and every morning. I'm going to decide not to get angry. I'm not going to be intimidated by other people who seem to do better than me. I'm going to make it. I'm going to get on with it. But that is often just copy-pasting what we hear around us. And so in our passage today, what we're going to do is this. In a sense, the the author and uh, uh, Mark, who's writing, is inviting us to do a little bit of open-heart surgery. He's going to open up and help us to think and realize what it takes to succeed in life. And we're going to get to compare a variety of different reactions in human beings, and we're going to get a look, a good hard look, at ourselves. Now, it's, it's a key passage, this. And you've been following through Mark's Gospel, I think, preaching through it each Sunday. And you'll know then that we're getting right to the business end of Mark's Gospel. And the event that the entire Gospel is going towards, and the whole Bible is built around, in fact, is what? Is Jesus dying on the cross. And that's going to happen next week or the week after, wherever you get to it in your Sunday sermons. Next chapter, anyway. And so today is kind of the moment of reckoning, if you like. It's the tipping point where we go from Jesus going along to actually ending up on the cross. And what happens in this passage is, I think Mark is inviting us to compare and contrast different people 
And first and foremost, Jesus Christ himself with everyone who is around him. We get to see here who Jesus really is and in contrast with everyone else. If you've been, as you've been looking through Mark's gospel, I imagine you've been thinking, thinking about and seeing the different key things that Mark talks about. He talks about who Jesus is, doesn't he? And he talks about what Jesus has come to do. So you've seen Jesus. Who is he? Wow, he is the unique God, creator himself, who has stepped down into the world 2,000 years ago to live as the perfect man. You've seen them command nature, create, uh, get rid of death, beat demons, all this kind of stuff. He is the creator God living on earth. And we get to watch him in Mark's gospel. But what's he come to do? Well, he said it again and again through Mark's gospel, hasn't he? He has come to die. Mark 8, 31, 9.31, 10.33. Good verse to remember where Jesus says explicitly, Son of man, me, Jesus, must suffer many things, be rejected and be killed, and after three days rise again. Jesus has made it very clear. He's come to die. And then in these two scenes here, basically, Jesus signs off on those two things that Mark has been teaching us all along. Who he is, what he's come to do. And we're asked by the author, how are you going to respond to that? So the first big thing we're going to see um, from verses 43 to 65. Again, you can have a look at it on us on page 1021. We see here, God's king, mighty king, has come to die for sinners. God's king has come to die for sinners. Very simple. Um, first of all, 43 to 52, this, where he's arrested, where Judas comes, we just see that Jesus has come to die. It's the confirmation of what he's been saying. He's been saying it, here he really makes it happen. Now these verses should be really shocking. There's no missing that. Jesus' own disciple comes out to get him. Clubs, swords, everything going on. It's a kind of descriptive passage, isn't it? And you can just think his enemies, they're all excited because yeah, they've managed to turn one of Jesus' own against him. They're really going to get him this time. This is it after a whole, uh, how many chapters of trying. And the betrayal, it's with a kiss. It's just kind of dirty and oh, makes you feel like that, doesn't it? It's a mockery of all that Judas has done before. It's a terrible scene. And as Jesus points out, it's cowardly tactics. It's not even done right. They come at night. They know something isn't right. And they just couldn't bring themselves to do it in the light of day in front of the crowds at the temple. Couldn't risk it. And then you take on the scene of this betrayal and a mob and the pitiful attempt to fight back by one of the disciples, just managing to cut off the ear. I mean, what's that like? And then Jesus' reaction. Well, it stands out, doesn't it, like a bright beacon in the darkness. Verse 48 we read, am I leading a rebellion? No, he's, he's clearly no robber. And verse 49, what's he doing there? He's just reminding everybody that all this dark stuff going on. Actually, he's the one who is standing there controlling events even. For all their planning and crowing over, managing to get Judas to turn over in this big strategy, they're just simply playing into the hands of the one who planned it all anyway. Now that in no way takes any responsibility from Judas or the mob. Don't think like that. They are out to murder the Son of God. And the darkness and the ugly scenes here reveal the plans of their hearts. 
But amidst the chaos, Jesus reminds us that he's the one who is fulfilling his mission. The scriptures must be fulfilled. One little phrase which reminds us that uh, these guys have been planning around for a year or a few years, two, two or three years for this. But God's been planning since the beginning of time to bring about this event. He's come to die, and he's making it happen. And he's come to die for who? Well, it's interesting, isn't it? Who is around him? We'll follow that through. And then he's put on trial. And what happens as Jesus goes before the, the Sanhedrin, that's the kind of the Jewish um, kind of uh, authorities of the day, the religious authorities who've been kind of given the, the power over religious affairs, if you like, by the Romans. Well, we see basically his truth and his power in contrast to the lies and the desperation of these Jewish leaders. We just see that Jesus, wow, he's different. He is truly God's king, this divine uh, Messiah. That's the, the, the promise, God's promised king from all eternity. He is God made man standing here on earth. And he just stands out in contrast to everyone else. Do you notice in verse 55, 56 there? They, even when they try to invent things he's done wrong, they can only then just mess it up. <laughs> it's ridiculous, isn't it? And just contrast that with, with any human being, certainly you and me. Any chance of us being so perfect that even made-up stuff won't stick? No way. <laughs> you don't have to make anything up. No chance. But Jesus, yeah, they can't even make something up against him. And even when, verse 58, I don't know if you understood that, when they say that he, he claims he will destroy this temple, even then they just don't have a clue and they're inventing things. So Jesus, what did he said? He said, destroy this temple when they were looking at the temple, but he was speaking about his own body, we're told. And they are effectively, they are, they are by what they're doing here, they are fulfilling even what Jesus said they would do. And then for what reason do they finally condemn him? And the irony is even thicker as he gets to this point. They accuse him of claiming to be, and they kill him for being exactly who he is. And, and the thing about this, okay, is that that doesn't scare them when it should. I don't know if you understood the, the, the quote in verse 62. So Jesus is silent, first of all, and they say, you know, what are this? You, 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 you're, you're saying that you're the Messiah. You're saying that you're going to do all these things. Verse 61, are you the Messiah, the Son of the Blessed One? Jesus says, I am. You will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. Now, that, that, what he's doing there is he's quoting a verse that they would have known, and in a sense, they're probably referencing by saying, are you the Messiah, the son of the blessed one? So the high priest has probably already got this, 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 this verse this, that Jesus is quoting it in, in his head, and it's a quotation from a prophet in the Old Testament. So hundreds, hundreds of years ago, a guy called Daniel, who was a king, had a vision of heaven, of the, the, the reality of this world, as it is really, with all its, in all its spiritual glory. And you can have a look at it. Have a look at, we're going to read it because it's, it, it helps us to understand. So if you want us to read it with me, it's page 894, Daniel chapter 7, and verse 13 and 14.
And it's a view into heaven to see the reality of who this person, this son of man, is. Okay? Now, who is he? Well, let's read it. 7.13. In my vision at night I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man, coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days, that's the Almighty God, and was led into his presence, and he was given, here's the important bit, authority, glory, and sovereign power, and all nations and peoples of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. Ultimate, divine, power and authority. And Jesus says, that's me. He admits, and he says, yes, that's me. So what are they doing? They're accusing Jesus of being the divine ruler of the universe, and they're condemning him for that. You see the horror of their argument? They accuse blasphemy, but he really is who he says he is. They are setting out, therefore, and here's the crazy thing, they are setting out to kill God himself. And they condemn and they spit on their rightful ruler, God made man. They say that he's claiming to be God, and and, and they're right. And so in putting Jesus on trial, what are they doing? They're putting themselves on trial, are they not? As they call blasphemy, they condemn themselves as those who would kill God's son. And so as they decide that he deserves to die, they're just proving that they themselves are guilty and deserve such a punishment. Jesus, God's king, has come to earth to die. But he stands there and shows them that it is them who are rebelling against God. So why does he need to die? Well, this shows us, in fact. Uh, last week or a couple of weeks ago, you have read that Jesus decides that he must die on the cross to suffer the punishment for sin that each and every human being deserves. When you read about the cup of wrath, was that last week? I think you studied, you studied that together. Jesus was praying in Gethsemane, and he prays, let this cup be taken from me. I'm sure you saw, what, what is that cup? Well, it's the cup containing all of the concentrated, righteous punishment and anger against every sin. And as he prays, Jesus decides and accepts to go and drink it, to accept that anger. He says, is there any other solution? But no, the only way to deal with that and for anybody to be right with God is for someone to die on the cross and only Jesus, God himself, can do that without being crushed for eternity by the weight of sin. And there's no other way to be righteous, to get right with God. And so the people and the entire crowd here prove themselves worthy of that punishment by crying out for the death of God's Son. And yet, a crazy thing is, here is Jesus. He lets them act like that because he's come to die for sinners, just like them. God's king has come to die for sinners. 
And so we're beginning to see that this is, this is what success is like for Jesus. <laughs> He's come to give his life, to die for others. And basically, this is the crunch point where Jesus' attitude and action should just stop us dead in our tracks. See, we may have all kinds of ideas about what we want to achieve in life, how to define success, how to get a, make ourselves okay. You might even think, yeah, I know what Jesus wants me to do. But this moment in Mark's Gospel is like a big reset button. It clears off the etch-a-sketch. It's saying, look, everything you've ever thought before about how to be a good Christian, about how to, how to please Jesus, well, look what Jesus is doing. He's rewriting the very principles of humanity, if you like. Imagine if you, if you woke up one morning, and discovered that gravity had been flipped round. <laughs> well, what to do? And instead of a world where we live and we build on the idea that if you put something down, it will stay there, suddenly we just have to redesign our entire existence. I don't know how you, you know, you just have to sort of walk around with ropes that, that you could hang on to all the time. We'd have to fundamentally redesign Earth. Be no good just to sort of try and do th- make do with things as they are. And that's what Jesus does here, basically. The true creator who made it all in the beginning, one with all authority, sovereign power, he comes to die. And he's saying, listen, that is the reality around which every one of you who lives on my earth needs to redesign your life around. Well, how? Well, it's about accepting simply that we need Jesus to die for us, and that is where we begin and end our lives as human beings if we want to succeed. See, throughout this passage, we're presented, aren't we, with different uh, responses to the death of Jesus. You notice that? So in verse 50, what happens? Everyone leaves him and uh, and runs away. (laughs) No disciples hang around. And you notice the young man in verse 51, 52? Possibly Mark himself, the author. Well, what happens? He runs away naked. He's effectively saying, I would prefer to to run away naked than to be associated with Jesus. Pretty strong, huh? And then we get the story of Peter. He follows Jesus. All the way up until we get to verse 54 here. And then as we cut away to the trial of Jesus, and as the people and the chief priests prove themselves guilty of eternal punishment by deciding to kill God himself, then the camera pans back to Peter. And it's basically asking us, is is this guy doing any better than them? What's different between Peter and these other guys? Uh, and the sad thing is that as we look at Peter, and remember this, we need to know this, the very best disciple, that's how he's presented through the gospel, we find out that he is just as guilty as any other person there. How does that work? Well, first of all, uh, Peter, we know from you've studied it, wouldn't agree. He was outraged by the idea that he would betray Jesus. Do you remember that? Verse 31, back in, 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 uh, in chapter 14, he says, If I must die with you, I will not deny you. I will not fall away. I can do it. That's what he's saying. 
I'm as good as you, Jesus. I'm going to help you sort this out. And the danger is, well, what? We think like Peter, who thinks he can follow Jesus and help Jesus out. He can find it within himself to be good enough. You know how sometimes when you're um, organising games at a party or something like that, and you get everyone with a long, in a long line, and you say, right, okay, tallest at one end, smallest at the other, or maybe oldest, youngest, or your birthday, one end, and all that, you know, that kind of thing. Big line of people. But imagine if we played that game with this passage, going from best people to the worst. Where are we going to put people? Judas, Peter? Well, fairly obvious for Judas, isn't it, really? He's easy. <laughs> you know, his name has just become even the byword for, 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 as an insult for the biggest traitors around. You know, you leave city, you go to place for villa. Traitor. You're a Judas. Exactly that. And we use it like that. We're not going to call our children Judas because that's what it's about. Nobody's called there. <laughs> Here he is. He's a disciple who has decided to murder his former friends. And he does it with a kiss. It's a cold-blooded act, isn't it? He's selling his soul for a bit of silver. No hesitation. No regret. So it's easy to put him on one end of the line. Pure evil. And Peter, where do we put him? Well, he's done pretty well. He's done better than everyone else in this passage. He's still following, verse 54. Gets points for that, surely. He was up for fighting the mob. We think it's probably him who cut the ear off. He's hanging in there. But what does he actually do in these verses in 66, 72, in this little passage before the fire? He betrays Jesus. He does a Judas, to use the word we've just learned. And to make the point clear, we get it confirmed not once, not twice, but three times. Makes painful reading, doesn't it, this, these verses. You're with Jesus, weren't you? Never. You really sure? Even swears. No, effing, effing not. No way. No way. I'm sure you're, 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 you're something about him, aren't you? I don't know this man you talk about. So whose side is Peter on in the end? Even the setup in the courtyard shows his treachery, doesn't it? Jesus is imprisoned over there. Peter clearly around the fire, showing the warmth with those who are planning to beat and kill Jesus. He's joined them. So we begin to see that it's not about a line, about who is better or not. There are two sides, and that is all. And on one side there is Jesus, and the other side there is literally everybody else. Only Jesus stands firm with God's plan. Only Jesus is obedient to his Father. Only Jesus is truthful. Only Jesus can die on the cross, therefore, and achieve forgiveness. Every single other person abandons him and joins in the killing of God's king. Judas, all the disciples, Peter. And Mark wants us to understand, too, from this passage, that that is all of us, all of humanity. All of humanity takes part in this act of killing God's king because we prefer to kill God's king because in the end, we would not be able to not deny him. Peter, in a sense, is he's the best placed of all, all humankind to side with Jesus. 
He was sure he could do it. He's the one who, as first to see he's the Christ, walked with Jesus, everything perfect. But in the end, he's just as guilty before God as those who gang together to assassinate his son. Mark wants us to see ourselves in the story because we too are those who would prefer to get together to get rid of Jesus. And why? In the end, because we don't want to admit our own moral and practical failure, our incapacity to achieve this by ourselves. Think of our line of people again. Where would you put yourselves on it? How would we do the line in this room? (laughs) Well, you know, you might think, I'm all right. Definitely not a Judas. Obviously, I'm not as good as Peter. Probably a bit better than him or her, though. You know, so I'll go somewhere in the middle. And our reaction is to compare ourselves with others, isn't it? Effectively, that's immediately what we do. We might despair when we compare ourselves on people, feel better, but we're definitely not as bad as him or her. And in the end, we just like to think that we can manage all right in the end. That we'll be okay. That when others fail, that won't be me. <laughs> they failed. Not me. A conversation with a friend who had this kind of attitude and just said, you know, life is a bit like this, and in the end, what's going to happen is, if I go to heaven, if there is a God, then we'll just have a chat, and I'm sure we'll be fine. You know, we'll just, we'll just work things out. But the whole Gospel of Mark and the story of the Bible brings us to this point with Peter. And we need to recognize that we need Jesus to die in our place and take the punishment that we deserve. We are incapable by ourselves. As human beings, we want to think we can sort ourselves out. Our quotes and everything all say, yeah, our pride pushes us to say, I can do it in the end. But we cannot. Even with our best efforts, we end up like Peter. So that means that we need Jesus to die for us so that he can take the punishment we deserve for our sin. And today's passage is difficult reading, isn't it? It takes us through the ultimate failure of mankind, where even the very best join in. So where do we go from there? The crazy thing is that from such despair, there is such hope. (laughs) Three little things to think through as we finish. Three things. First, know and admit uh, your own desperate need for a saviour. Know and admit your own desperate need for a saviour. Jesus has started off with the beginning of this. He said, as he arrives uh, on the scene in Mark chapter 1, verse 15, repent and believe. And Peter gives us the glimmer of hope, doesn't he? Verse 72, what does he do? He goes out and he weeps. He broke down, he broke down and wept. And why does he weep? He just realized that he too is guilty of rejecting his king and wanting him to be dead. And he's broken by it. And we know from what follows that in that moment, Peter really truly repents. He's not just sorry about his own pride or feeling sorry for himself. He's got it. He knows that he needed in that moment Jesus to die in his place. And that truth should lead us 
first and foremost, to admit our own fundamental rejection of our Creator, Jesus Christ. There's no sliding scale. There's no better or worse. Either we admit our need for Jesus and come to him, or we're going to be left naked and abandoned and running away when judgment comes. Jesus knew, though, that Peter would reject him. And that is the wonderful thing in this story, isn't it? Jesus had said that would happen. And that is why Jesus decided to go to the cross to take the punishment that Peter deserved. So we, like Peter, need Jesus to die for us so that we can cling to his obedience and his sacrifice on our behalf. See, a Christian, a follower of Jesus, is first and foremost then someone who is broken by their own sin. And we should know what it is to weep at our sin before Jesus. I don't know, uh, you, uh, you personally, I imagine that we've got some people here who are wonderfully just thinking about what it is to follow Jesus, thinking through what it is to be a Christian. It's a great thing to do. But do you, do you see that Jesus changes everything here? He's saying, look, being a Christian is not about doing something, living something, being good enough. It is first and foremost about admitting that you need Jesus to die for you. It's pressing reset on everything we know and do in life and beginning again with this wonderful truth. That is the heart of the Christian faith. And for all of us, I hope you've, 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 you've heard this before. Mark has told us, the Bible has told us, and yet we forget, don't we? And so each day, this is the truth that will keep us close to Jesus. It's the wonder of the gospel. We so easily think, oh, we need just avoid being like Peter. We, we mustn't be like Peter and deny Jesus. But actually, it's already far too late for that. We've already shown so many times that we're exactly like him. So the only thing we should do like him is verse 72 at the end. Thanks to Jesus, and thanks to God's grace, we can jump right to that point in the story. Isn't that a wonderful thought? Peter had to go through all that, and yet we can be straight there. I need him. But as well, if we, if we, if we should know uh, about this truth, we should also know and love others in light of our need for Jesus and everyone's need for Jesus. I hope we can see a little bit that actually once we've got this, this foundation right, we can start to rebuild, if you like, Christian life around this truth. So it changes our relationships with one another. Well, we so often rate ourselves and we react badly when people see our sin <laughs> and we get cross when somebody shows me that I'm bad and all those kind of things. So we try to project we're okay, but once we realize this, we don't need to project that because it's Jesus who's died for us, not me. So if you, if you find you react angrily when your sin's exposed or don't like somebody who tries to point out that you've done something wrong, well... That's, this changes that. Suddenly we can say, wow, thank you for helping me remember that I need Jesus and therefore sort of help me to, to build my life around loving him more. Also, as we look around, we might be fighting sort of just in competition to try and be the ones who achieve, who, who do a little bit better at this or that in the Christian life. Oh, she seems to have just had so many more conversations about Jesus. I need to go and beat that and I, I'm going to be really annoyed with her <laughs> until I've managed to do something too but only Jesus is worthy 
There is no one else to compare ourselves to. And when we compare ourselves to him, we simply want to repent and ask him to do it for us. So that changes the way. We can then rejoice as we see other people doing things in Jesus Christ, as that first song we sang. And it means we'll value people. Well, it doesn't differently, doesn't it? When we realize that our value is simply based on what Jesus has done. We won't be valuing people by their ability. That would be amazing if we can really change that. And value people by who they are in Jesus Christ, and not by what we think they can achieve. And finally, what does this passage do for us? This passage tells us, know and love this Jesus. Know and love this Jesus. Because what do we see in this passage as Jesus stands there one step from the cross? Well, we get to compare Jesus to all those around him. And whilst everyone else does what? Puts financial reward in their own interests first, runs away like cowards, prefers shame to faithfulness, while everyone else crows about their own self-righteousness and shouts out blasphemy, when everyone else puts their own safety above their beliefs. Jesus, he stands there alone, wonderful, perfect, unshakable, the truth. And so we just want to gaze on him in that sense and and say, does that not draw you to love him and, and want to praise him and worship him and want to know him? He is just fundamentally different to anyone else in this world. Who is there else in all of humanity and history who has that power and who comes to serve you like that? No one. No one but Jesus can stand and be truth and have no fault in him. And he does this for you and me so that he can die to save us from ourselves. So let's start each day like this, each week, each year. Make this the way you walk together as a church and with others. We want to succeed in life. Well, the only way is to admit that you cannot and run to Jesus. Should we pray together? Let's pray. Oh Lord, forgive us for the way in which we look at ourselves and others and think that it is about us and we rate ourselves. Help us to see this wonderful reality. Or break our pride, we pray. Help us to see that a, a Christian is someone who is first and foremost broken before Jesus, who recognizes their need. And we pray that you would help us. In a sense, it's a very easy thing to recognize, and yet our pride pushes us to say, no, 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 not me. So I pray, Lord, that you would help us to see this reality for each and every person here. Pray for those of us who need to really recognize this for a first time. Those of us for whom it's become something a bit too easy to recognize and we need to actually take a good deep look again and admit our true and deep need for Jesus Christ. I'm going to pray for this church, particularly for the next couple of weeks, looking forward to Easter and the event where you really do die on the cross and prove that everything you've been saying is true, both by the fact that you really do die and take that sin and then resurrect it to live for eternity, to take your place as this marvellous, wonderful, all-powerful Son of Man reigning for eternity. Help us to, to see that reality and therefore to live our daily lives in accordance with your wonderful truth.
I pray for, for those of us who need to um, change our attitudes. I know that I can think of different relationships where I've got to um, get them right again in light of what we've seen this morning. And I pray that would drive us to really love and work together well in order to talk about Jesus and him being the one that everyone needs to meet. And I pray, Lord, that at the end, we would simply be able to say that we love this Jesus. Thank you for being such a wonderful, perfect saviour, truthful, faithful, steady, who is not doing anything for his own gain or shouting out blasphemy, but is inviting sinners to come and be forgiven. Help us to put that right in our own lives. Amen.